Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us for worship today. We are truly blessed and grateful to have you here, and we are grateful to know that the God that created the heavens and the earth, the God that created the universe, the God that calms the seas is here in our midst, ready to meet with us, and ready to meet our needs. Do you believe that today? Some of us. That's good. Well, hopefully by the end of the sermon, the rest of you will as well. We are glad that you are here, whether it is in person or online. Uh, we do pray that God speaks to you through our time together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the Word of God. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we thank you for the truth of the songs that we've sung. And Lord, may the, the declarations of our mouth be more than just rote words that we sing and melodies that we enjoy. Lord, may they actually be truths that, that seep into our hearts and into our spirits and impact and influence who we are and how we function. Lord, may we seek to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the only begotten Son of the Father. May we see who you are, who you were, and who you continue to be. And may we seek to adjust our lives accordingly. God, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, as we meet with one another, Lord, that you would be very present with us. Lord, knowing that you are present with us no matter where we are in this world, that there's never a time that you leave us nor forsake us, that you're always there. But in these moments, Lord, make us especially aware of the movements of your spirit. Speak to us and mold us and make us according to the power and presence of your spirit and according to the greatness of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. When high school, uh, in my Spanish class, uh, those students that actually made it to Spanish 4, I was not one of those students, so the, this is from second-hand account, but those that did make it to Spanish 4 had a special midterm or end-of-the-year exam, depending on where they were in the year, and, and the way that the exam worked is they would load into a van or a bus, and they would head to one of the authentic Mexican restaurants in town, and one of the, the stipulations for being able to go or being allowed to go on this trip and how you were graded is... If you went on this trip, you could only speak in Spanish. And so if you went on this trip, like not just speaking in Spanish to order, right? Like I, I know some of us get to, to the Mexican restaurant and we're feeling ourselves for a moment. And so we, we pronounce the R's, the you know. I'd like pollo con ros, con ros, right? You know, we, we get the R's. My daughter is cringing at the front. I wish you could see it. It's great. But, but we, we, we all of a sudden become experts, you know, gracias. And we do, not those, like you had to speak, even if you were speaking to your classmates who came with you from the school, you could only speak in Spanish, which meant you either really needed to know what you were, were doing or you were going to waffle your way through. It was, it was an important thing that, and, and you know, it was, it was a good measure because oftentimes the students would come back and we would hear them later in the day talking about, you know, I thought I knew what I was doing until I got there and started speaking. And, and what I thought I knew and what I learned in the classroom from watching my teacher, I realized that I had a little bit of growing and a little bit of, of studying and a some more practice that needed to happen before I was ready to go to the mission field and live full time speaking this language. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I actually did have a similar experience myself, but not in school. Our, our church often takes, our church here has taken a trip to the Dominican Republic. And I brought that with me from a previous church. Pastor Mike has gone before too. But the, the specific place that we go is with our missionary, Madeline Flores. And, and so we'd gone, the church that I went to had been doing it for 12 years before I arrived. They had done dozens of trips to, to the Dominican Republic, and, and every time we go, we, we pick about three common songs, usually pretty old songs, Lord, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, songs that we really know in English so it'll be easier to translate them to Spanish. So they'd gone for, for a dozen years to, to the same place with the same people, using the same songs in the same sheets that we were using. And one time, I re we were sitting there, and we're running through the songs, trip before I came here, and, and I'm sitting there practicing the songs, and, and my friend Saudi, who, who is a Dominican, goes, Pastor, can I tell you something? And I said, sure, Saudi, you can tell me anything. She said, your songs, they're not so good. They're not so good. 
Like, what do you mean they're not so good? Like, we've been doing these, like, these exact same songs we've done. Like, the last trip that I came here, we sang these songs dozens of times in front of hundreds of people. She says, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. But you sound like baby when you sing this song. It's like, is it my pronunciation? She says, no, words all out of order, not where they belong. We need to fix. We need to fix. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, that would have been good to know 12 trips ago, Right? Like, you've been letting me go around the Dominican Republic singing a song like an infant. It's one of those things that you need to reveal to me. I don't know this language. You do. You're the teacher. I'm the student. Tell me. You sound like a baby. Stop doing that. And so often when we go from, and that's the way it often happens, we feel ourselves in, in the sterile environment, right? We, we, we start to feel pretty good about our knowledge when we can give the rote ritual answers, when we, when we know that we know that we know the things. But oftentimes, this has been my experience in life, not just with language, with the, but with so many things, that what I have learned in the classroom has prepared me for what I need to do in the real world. But it is not the same. Anyone else had that experience? That what you, what you learned in the classroom did in fact prepare you for what you were going to do in the wor- real world. But they were not the same. There were some adjustments and adaptations to get, to, to get, to get truly molded beyond the, the understanding that you gained in the classroom to a real world application that you could live. To, to go from being the student in the chair to the teacher up front, there's another layer of experience that needs to happen. And we see Jesus in our passage for today, Mark chapter 6, looking to give that to his disciples fairly early on in his ministry. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're actually going to start in verse 7. Mark 6, starting in verse 7. And it says this, Mark 6, starting in verse 7. It says, Calling the twelve to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread. No bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So we see this, we're going we're gonna to come back again to another passage uh, a, a little bit later, but, but we see this first instance, right, that Jesus brings his disciples together and, and he sends them out to practice what he's been preaching. And we see a pretty important point for our understanding, for our understanding of what they were doing, but also for our understanding for our own lives. What is modeled by the master should be practiced by the student, What is modeled by the master should be practiced by the student. What we understand, and for the disciples, it was a matter of what they saw and experienced with Jesus in real time, in person, right? What they saw him doing and were watching him do, they were going to have to do that themselves. But I would argue to you that the whole point of Scripture for you and I is not for entertainment or just educational purposes. It is meant to be applied. That what we understand and what we learn from the scripture should go beyond simple head knowledge to actual hand usage. That it should impact and influence the way that we live. That is the point of being a disciple, is it not? The point of being a disciple was learning to live like the teacher. That was especially true in Bible times. In Even in our Old English, in Old English, the word disciple literally means learner. It means learner. A disciple is a learner, someone who is is taking in information. But, But the concept of disciple moves beyond, again, just a knowledge to action. Action is implied with the concept of being a disciple. And if you are in here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is the calling, that we would be his disciples that we would learn from him and live what we learn. From the outset, Jesus communicated to his disciples that this was the goal, that he was going to equip them before he engaged them in doing the ministry. 
He was going to equip them for the ministry before engaging them in doing the ministry. I mean, think back over, over some of the passages that we've even seen to Mark thus far. We go back to Mark chapter 1, and we see Jesus calling disciples. In Mark 1, 17, it says that we, we see that Jesus is walking by the lake, and, lake, lake, and Jesus says to, to the fishermen out there, Peter and Andrew, and says, Come follow me, and I will t- send you to fish for people. A more colloquial quotation of this that maybe we use more commonly is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The the understanding implicit in that is, you were this and you did that. That was good. But I'm going to take you and I'm going to apply some of the principles and ideas of that and I'm going to make you something other. I'm going to mold you into something different. I'm going to give you a different mission. I'm going to give you a different purpose and I'm going to equip you to live that up. You were this but now you're going to be this if you follow me, right? It's, it's, it's clear. I, I want us to see this, that the idea of coming and following Jesus, being a disciple, implicit in it, explicit in it, is the idea that what you were is not what you are going to be. Change is, is all over the call of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We go just a page over to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to drive out demons. It's clear, right? Like, there, there's, there's no confusion about why Jesus has called them. Jesus is calling them close, having them live with him, eat with him, watch him, and see everything that he does so that ultimately they do what he did. Jesus is self-replicating. That is the point of disciple. And the truth is, this was how the educational process worked in the first century. One would walk around, and and they they would choose students. Actually, in most cases, the students would come and apply, and a good teacher would pick the best of students. And we know that Jesus really didn't care about that. Jesus had particular people he wanted. So Jesus calls his students to him, and that what would happen is rather than going to some sterile classroom, they would walk around and follow Jesus. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible that Jesus is walking somewhere as he is teaching? That as they are traveling, as they are going along, Jesus taught them in many parables. Look throughout your Bible, through, through the gospel sometime, and see how many times that's what's stated. Because Jesus taught them on the go. It wasn't just that he taught them in the sterile classroom. He was teaching them in the real world as they were watching him do the things that he was actually talking about. They were with him all the time. Teacher would invite these young students to live with him, to work with him, and to be molded into the teacher's image. That was the end goal. And now we see Jesus sending them on a trial run. That he calls them to himself once again. And he's going to send them out in pairs, which ultimately points to the, the, the calling that they would ultimately get, doesn't it? that you're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That this moment right now, this midterm, if you will, is pointing to what the final reality is going to be after graduation. Now, why were they sent in groups of two? Jesus was perfectly capable of doing this all on his own. There are probably two reasons, maybe more, but the two most prominent reasons are this. Most of these people are teenagers, these are, not, these are not adult men. You know, we see the pictures in Sunday school, and we see these old men with, like, full beards, and they're fully grown. And Jesus, if anyone, Jesus is about the youngest in the group. Have you ever noticed that? Like, look at the Last Supper. Other than the, the Apostle John, who really looks like a girl, the rest of them look older than Jesus. It's a misnomer. Most of Jesus... For all intents and purposes, Jesus was probably the very first of all youth ministers with the very worst of adult volunteers in Peter. Right? You tell the students, hey, don't do this, and Peter's like, I'm doing it. Right? Hey, guys, watch this. Like, he's that leader. So Jesus is walking around with these teenagers. You're sending teenagers out in the first century. It was dangerous for men to go by themselves. So you send them out in twos for for some element of protection. But there's another reason. Remember, Jesus was, was speaking and preaching a new message. 
and doing so with authority, but he did so on his own authority. Well, how did people validate truths of that time if they were teaching things that were uncommon? They did it on the backs of two or three witnesses. So by sending them out in twos, Jesus is sending them out with the necessary validation that they were going to need that my testimony is in fact true. That yeah, what, what he is saying to you about what Jesus is doing is in fact true because I've seen it. Two or three witnesses. I had to wonder as I was reading this this week, you know, they don't know all that the future holds, but like who had to be Judas's partner? Right? Like, and did they feel cheated? Like, oh, man, why well, I got to go with him, Jesus? It's probably Peter. You, you always send the hardest kid with your, with your, your top general. Hey, Peter, take, take Judas. Oh, Jesus. The mission was simple, though. They were to do what Jesus did as his representatives. It's identical. It's really simple, isn't it? I mean, other than the fact that it's impossible, right? Like, the, there is that, that you're going to cast out demons and heal the sick. But is that not exactly what they'd watch Jesus do? You're going to preach the good news of repentance, and you're going to heal and cast out demons. And I'm going to give you the authority to do this. You are going to go out and do exactly what you've watched me do. The word for he began to send them out is the word apostello. It's, it's the word from which we get the word apostle. And, and Jesus is going to use the word again in a minute. But understand that at this point in the Bible, apostle is not a title. That at this point in the biblical narrative, the word apostle is a function. It is an activity that you are, it carries with it the idea that you are going to be sent, you're a sent one, that's what apostle literally means, but it means you're being sent as, as a, a, an ad, advocate. You are being sent as an official representative. So he sent them out as his official representatives. He sent them out as his agents. The call, and I want you to hear this from me this morning, the call and the commission remains the same for us today. Spoiler alert, this is the end game. This is, this is a one-time thing for the disciples, right? We're going to see this as we go, that this was a, a contained incident, but it does point to what came at the end. And the end with the Great Commission, that applies to us. That we need to be learning from the master because what the master did is what we are to do in our lives. We are to be sent into the world as, as the ambassadors and official representatives of the living, most high son of God. It's important that we pay attention and that we allow what he did and who he was to, to seek, seep into our souls and change who we are. That we not hold firmly to who we've been and how we've done it in the past, but that we look to consistently and constantly be molding ourselves into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we see Christ working on with his disciples. So he sends them out. And we see something that, that's inherent here that is going to flow throughout the rest of the Gospels as well. And that's that following Jesus is going to require some faith. You know, he gives them partners, but then he takes literally everything else away. I, I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip, or I'm sure you've been on a vacation. And maybe you are a minimalist, and good for you. We can talk later, and you can teach me your ways. I am not a minimalist. And so when I go on any trip, packing is my least favorite part. I start stressing about it. Two weeks before, my wife is amending at the front right now, I start stressing about it two weeks before because how do I know what I'm going to need on that trip? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be hot? What, how many times are we going out somewhere nice? Because I can't wear the same nice shoes twice. I could take the purple shoes for one day, and I need the Easter egg shoes for another day, which means I'm probably going to need an extra bag. I literally take a bag for my hats with me when we travel. I, I, am, I am the finicky one the particular one in the family. Packing is not my thing. So when it's a mission trip and I'm going to be overseas, it is a stressful situation. And when you go, you get a 50-pound bag. You know, you know how much stuff is in 50 pounds? 
and I stress over it for days, and I have a little scale, and I promise you I am going to get every bit of that 50 pounds in that bag. But it's not just that we take a 50-pound bag with our stuff for us in it. We take a 50-pound bag because we get two. Second 50-pound bag has supplies for the mission. That doesn't count our backpack and our carry-on. We'd, we'd be taking some stuff with us on a mission trip. Notice what Jesus says to these disciples. The disciples would be tra traveling extremely light. One walking stick. And actually, if you, look at, if you look at another passage, one of the other disciples specifies, this is a walking stick, but no shepherd's staff. Now, that's an important detail because a shepherd's staff was something that you could use to defend yourself. A walking stick was just a walking stick. Just one walking stick. You can take the, it's inferred in it, but they could take the clothes on their backs. But no food. No food. Listen, it's hard for me to take my kids across town without snacks. Jesus says, no food. Jesus says, no bag. Well, it seems kind of redundant, right? Why no bag if you've already said I can't take... I can't take any food with me, and you're about to tell me I can't take any extra clothes. Well, this isn't a knapsack, okay? This, this isn't a backpack or a luggage bag that a traveler would take. What Jesus is actually referring to is a beggar's bag. It was a small little leather bag that rolled over. You've probably seen them in pictures before that they would use when they got to a place to beg for alms to pay for what they were doing. It would allow them a, a sense of independence as they were going and a, a, a means for them to, to pay for what they were doing. So as they would teach or preach, they might finish the message and, and then ask for alms from the crowd for what they've offered. And Jesus says, nope, 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 no, no beggar's bag. Jesus says, no money. Don't take any money with you. The word for money is actually the word for small copper coins. So Jesus is being very specific here. Don't even take any pocket change. No bag for begging to get money. No, don't even take any pocket change with you. No, no money. You can wear some sandals. You can wear some shoes, one pair of shoes. That's rough. No extra shirt or tunic. Now, we would think of that as maybe being an extra change of clothes, but understand they have no money, they have no food, and so there's a good chance that they could be sleeping outside. That extra shirt could serve as a blanket. That extra shirt could serve as warmth, as they could use it to, to help formulate some shelter. Jesus says, nope, none of that. You get the clothes that you're wearing and a stick. That's it. Have a good mission trip. Jesus, why, why did he do this? What is the point of Jesus creating all of these regulations and, and these rules and stipulating these things that, that strip the disciples down to the bare necessities? By doing so, Jesus created a situation in which their only option, their only option was to trust in the prov providential care of God for not only their success on the, on the mission field, because what are they doing? They're going to preach the good news, Right? That's one thing. But Jesus has told them, you're going to heal. You're going to cast out demons. They don't have the ability to even do the mission on their own without God putting this power into them. They are reliant on God for success. But not only that, they are now reliant on God for their very survival. If this mission is going to work, if they are going to make it through it, it is only going to be through the power and presence of God in and with them. Now, while these instructions are, are particular for this specific missional journey, so, so to be clear that, that I have not sinned by taking my 50 pounds of supplies with me to, to on mission trips, this is not meant to be prescriptive, meaning that we don't apply this to every mission trip. It is specific to this trip, but there is a principle in, inherent within it that we need to apply to our own lives. Our job as followers of Christ is to obediently and faithfully pursue the mission of Christ sharing his message, but we are to trust him with the outcome and with supplying what we need in the meantime. We are to trust him to make it move, to make it work. We, we are to take with us ourselves and do what we can with it, but ultimately God is the one that's going to make it work, and do we trust him to do what needs to be done? Do we have faith? Because following Jesus is going to take faith. And having faith 
it should be more than, than a trite spiritual platitude. Oh, have faith. Ha- having faith should be more than just the warm fuzzies that we feel in our spirit that, oh, God is so good. I'm not mocking that. Having faith should be, should be more than, than just a feeling of confidence within us. Having faith should be an action. Faith is a verb. It should be something that we do, that we move with confidence, believing and knowing full well, sometimes without evidence, that God is going to show up as only God can do and that God is going to do in and through us what cannot be done in our own strength. I hope that that's how we live as as a church, I, I hope that as, as we move be beyond the realities of now into what's next and we begin looking as things begin to, to resettle and reopen and remove, that we look into the future and that we don't, change, we don't choose a vision that's going to get us back to where we were. I, I hope that we don't choose a mission that gets us back to the, the, the line. where we, I, I hope we choose a mission and a vision that scares us. Something that's beyond our abilities. Something that's beyond our control. Something that, that as we do it, by the leading and guidance and power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can get to the end and say, we picked that out knowing that God moved us there, but only God could have done that. Only God could have done that. Because following Jesus requires a change with us. Following Jesus requires faith to move beyond what we're capable of into the areas where it's only capable through the power and providential care of God's hand. Now we need to understand as we look at, at the, the reality of what the disciples faced and what Jesus sent them out to, we won't win them all. Not everyone is going to be receptive or supportive of the good news of the gospel. Doesn't matter how we package it, doesn't matter how we present it, doesn't matter how uh, well we, we put our words together, it doesn't matter how much we do, there are going to be some people that just don't want what we're selling. And we need to learn to live in that. Note that the disciples are to rely on the hospitality of the people in those towns where they would serve. Which really, in truth, wasn't a big stretch for the day. It was expected in ancient Near Eastern culture, and to be honest with you, even in Eastern culture today, it is expected that, that they will take care of you, that hospitality will be offered. They'll provide for what you need. To not do so, refusal to receive a messenger was a clear indication of a rejection of the message that they were presenting. And Jesus warned that there would be places and people that would be possibly less than hospitable to their good news. And Jesus says, hey, look, that's okay. If that happens, if someone refuses you and they don't, ref- they don't offer hospitality, if someone is hostile to you, that's fine. You just need to brush the dust off of the shoes of your feet and you need to walk on. Now, this, this actually pointed to a reality of something that, that was a common feature taught by the Pharisees and the teachers of the day. But you know, there are actually places where this happens now, that where, where places are, are so against one another and have such a low view of one another that they will literally wash the dust or dirt off of a bus before you go from one country to another. It, it happens in the Dominican Republic. If you go from Haiti on a bus from Haiti into the Dominican Republic, as your bus crosses from one to the other, you are pulled into a bay, and they power wash your bus before they send you on. Because they don't want the dirt of their, of their country to defile our country. It's the same island. But somehow, their, even their dirt isn't good enough for us. That was, that was the thought of the day. If you came from a Gentile region, the, the, the teaching of the day by, by the teachers of the law was that if you came from a Gentile region and you had to step into that Gentile region, before you left that Gentile region and came back into Israel proper, you were to get all of the dust off of all of you because even the dust would defile Israel. I mean, how insulting is that? That is a, a complete and total rejection and devaluing of a whole place and a whole people. 
And it was, an, it was sending an intentional message in that day. It was sent to, meant to send the message that, that those people were completely heathen and beyond redemption. Even their dust was beyond redemption and made you dirty spiritually. And Jesus, in the way that Jesus so often did, turned their own judgment against them. Because Jesus is not talking about Gentile dust. Jesus is sending them out to other Hebrew towns. And he says, hey, look, if you go into that town and those Hebrew teachers and those people in that region refuse to receive this good news, you shake the dust off of your feet as a sign against them. This is fine. We'll, we'll use their own sign. Now, I want to be clear about this. That this is not, this is not a, a full rejection of those people uh, because we don't want to use this as a means to give up on anybody. That we just say, fine, I, I am not going, they are unworthy, they are unsavable, we're going to move on. So often we take these things and we go to the farthest extreme. It's not what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying that you preach the gospel as best you can. And if people continue to reject your intentional effort needs to not be there. It's not that we don't offer it if they were to ask. It's not that we stop preaching and that if they show up at the crowd that we walk away. It's not we're saying that they are going to hell. It's that we're saying, hey, we've done what we can. We are innocent of this blood. We have preached the gospel as best we can. We have laid it before you, and it is to you to receive it or reject it. Jesus modeled it himself. Unfortunately, we didn't have the time to go through it, but if we look back into the beginning of chapter 6, that Jesus goes to his own town, his own hometown, and even in Jesus' home, own hometown, with the people that should have been for him and behind him, all that they could say is, that's just Mary's kid. There's nothing. How, how is he talking like this? Look, look, his brothers and sisters are here. This is Mary's kid. He's a carpenter. He's just a grunt laborer. There's nothing special about him. What, who, what gives him the authority? What gives him this power? Who does he think he is? And, and so you know, even the reference, notice that, that in Mark's gospel, it says, isn't this Mary's son? That in and of itself is very insulting. You didn't address a man or a person by their mother. And to do so was saying something. The reality of Jesus being called Mary's son is showing that in that time, there were rumors probably circulating about the nature of Jesus' birth. You know the thing that we celebrate, that Jesus was born of a virgin? Can you imagine trying to explain that to people in your hometown? They received it lots of times about as well as you would expect. So if Jesus in his own hometown is not received and is being talked down, how are these young disciples as they go out into the world to preach the gospel? Why would we expect anything less for them? And why would we expect that we ourselves wouldn't at times be rejected as we present the same news and do the same work? Here's the truth. God offers his grace, and he does so freely, but the gospel isn't to be forced on anyone. We cannot legislate or force morality or salvation on the world. And Jesus says, take it and offer it as best you can. But if they reject it, you need to keep moving. There are others that need to hear. So Jesus sends them and, and the, the passage goes on and apparently the, the mission happens. And we're going to jump ahead to, to Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Mark 6.30, because here we see the return of the apostles, the disciples, and we see their report on what had happened. Mark 6, verse 30, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and, and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw such a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. 
This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and, and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are, are we going to go spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fishes. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So we see a second idea as the, Jesus, the, as soon as the disciples get back, and as they're reporting on what they've just experienced and learned on the mission, Jesus begins teaching them something else. And we see this, this, this idea that what Jesus is teaching them to do goes along with who Jesus is in his heart, the, the feelings that he has. Serving like Jesus starts in the heart, but it must move the hands. Serving Jesus starts in the heart but it must move the hands. We see the, the WWJD thing here again, right? The apostles gather around him, and they're clearly tired. Remember before, Jesus was tired after his mission, so they jumped in the boat, and, and Jesus snapped. What WWJD? Jesus snapped. There is a need for us to, at, at times to find space to get rest and, and we don't really get a full report, do we, from the disciples? There's never really a, a, an explicit statement of, that, yeah, this was successful. But there is. Implicit in the passage, in the text, is the idea that, that this mission has been incredibly successful. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. They were successful. Remember, when Jesus went around, and it was just Jesus preaching and teaching and touching people and healing people, crowds came. Can you imagine what that must have been like now that you don't just have one guy doing this, but you have 13? You don't just have one healer, you have 13. You don't have one person that can preach to the crowds, you have 13. The word has gotten out that something is going on. It was getting out before, but now these people, these disciples have been sent out into the surrounding villages and towns. As they've come back, what can you, you can only imagine how many people followed them back. If you, if you look at the history in the town surrounding where Jesus was at the time, the crowds that were there, it tells us at the end that there were 5,000 men. That is just the men who had been counted. Conservative estimates have, have the estimate being up to 10,000 more people or more that were there beyond the men. There, there wasn't a town in the region that was more than 2,000 people. The influx of people is incredible. Why are they there? Well, Jesus just sent his ambassadors out who are healing and teaching, and everybody's coming to see the man himself and his followers who do these amazing things. So Jesus and his disciples try to do the disappearing boat trick again. Right? It worked the first time. They jumped in the boat, they crossed, found a storm, get to the other side, and they're confronted by one guy with a legion of demons. This time it doesn't work. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They see him get in the boat, and they're like, we got to get out ahead of him. And so they somehow follow them. Maybe they were just close to shore. We don't know. They run, and they get to the point of disembarkation before them. And so rather than finding one guy with a legion of demons, Jesus and the disciples step off the boat and find literally legions of people awaiting them. Passage tells us that they can't even get a minute to eat. We, we would understand if, if the disciples were feeling some feelings right now. Right? They're, they're definitely hangry, maybe a little frustrated, annoyed. Every way they go, they're followed 
by needy people. I think for us, we, we need to understand that self-care is important. We need to seek times to rest. And, and we can be protective of that, but, but we also need to understand that, that when it came to between ser- serving the, the, the needs of the people, the essential needs of the people, and, and getting off for himself, that Jesus defaulted for, to serving. Service should be our default setting. And we see that compassion was a defining feature of Christ, if not the defining feature of Christ. This is an oft-repeated frame that, refrain that we see here in verse 34, that, that Jesus gets to the town and he had compassion on them. Jesus looks and he sees the people not as needy inconveniences, but as wandering sheep. Wandering sheep, it's a, it's a really good illustration, is it not? These people follow him everywhere he goes. It's Mary and her little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Fleeced was white as snow. Everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's Jesus, right? Everywhere that Jesus went, the lambs were following. This this is going to be important to us as we understand this text, this idea of Jesus seeing the people as sheep without a shepherd. These people are amazed by his authority. They're clearly starving for the truth of God's word. Notice that when they came, they were not coming. To this point, Jesus has offered no free meals. So why are these thousands of people following Jesus? Surely, we've, we've addressed, they want to see the show. But how often do we see in the text that these people sit and all day Jesus spoke to them? All day long they listen to Jesus preach. But Jesus looked and had compassion because he saw them as sheep wandering without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age defined by wandering sheep, do we not? The question is, do we see them? And when we see them, are we simply annoyed? Are we aggravated? Are we inconvenienced and and looking for a way to avoid them? Or like Jesus, do we see the wandering sheep, understanding their desperation, understanding their need, and are we inside our hearts, do our hearts break because these people are in need and wandering? Do our hearts, are our hearts moved to meet those needs? You know, the largest and fastest growing religious group in America is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That when asked to affiliate themselves with a denomination or a religion, the predominant identification is none. Nothing. And further, as we watch and look at our world, people jump from truth to truth, quote unquote. As fast as networks, conspiracy theorists, and opinionated people can throw them out there. Many have moved past it all and don't even look for someone else to help them with the truth and they've just decided I'm going to live my own truth. I am the final arbiter and determiner of truth. And I worry that many times we in the church are too concerned with our own rights, our own convenience and our own comfort to allow compassion to move us to action. We see the need, but we want to avoid or eliminate the problem from our view. Not its existence. We don't want to fix the problem. We want to mitigate the inconvenience. But we look at Christ, and rather than seeing it, do you think it wasn't an inconvenience to Jesus? But rather than choosing to see it as an inconvenience, Jesus saw it as an opportunity. His heart broke as he looked out with grace and compassion on these people, and he sought to meet the needs. We need that same kind of compassion in our own lives. Compassion that that helps us to overcome our own need for comfort and convenience and drives us into the struggle of the world. 
to jump in with the sheep who very, very much and very often bite. That we might meet the need and lead them into the green pastures of God's truth. And we see Christ illustrating that with the disciples. We need to understand that if the Lord called us to serve, the Lord will make a way. He will equip us with what we need to make it happen. If the Lord called us, the Lord will make a way. Notice that the disciples demonstrate an element of concern for the people, but Jesus doesn't allow them to just be concerned. It's great. We see the news, we see the realities, and we have concern in our heart. For Jesus, it's not enough for them to be concerned. Jesus makes them responsible. We are responsible for the things that we see in our world and trying to engage it and make it better. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus is communicating and demonstrating the same thing with his disciples. They encourage the congregation to sit down to dinner. And they want to know, how are we going to do this? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. With Jesus, what they have is more than enough. But notice what's happening. So they take the bread and the fish. They have the people sit down. Where does the passage say that Jesus has them to sit down? Anybody notice it? It's specific, and it uses an adjective that they are on the green grass. Now think back. Jesus just said, I see them as sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, have the people sit down on the green grass. Why, Why that specific note? Does this sound like a passage maybe you've heard before? In the 23rd Psalm, it says what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in the... Someone tell me. Green pastures. Jesus sees the sheep as wandering sheep, and he says, hey, guys, you feed these sheep. Have, have these sheep sit down on the green grass. Jesus is making a clear statement here that these are his sheep and that he is the shepherd. And that his under-shepherds are to feed them and to make the need. Isn't that what Jesus, when he calls Peter back, tells him? Hey, Peter, do you love me? Or Jesus, you know you love me. Okay, then what? Feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, Peter, do you really love me? Oh, yes, Jesus, I love you. And Peter, he says, then Peter, what? Feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, do you really, really love me? And Peter was offended. And Jesus said to him, then Peter... Feed my sheep. Brothers and sisters, this is the mission. This is what we've been sent to do. And as we look out at the world, we should be looking at the world with compassion, uh, understanding that that compassion in our hearts is meant to move our hands to make a difference. And that if the Lord has called us to serve, the Lord will make a way. True compassion will move us beyond concern to service. And God will make a way as we seek to serve his wandering sheep. Sheep. You are enough. Your gifts are enough. God has called you to follow him, to see what he is doing, and then to to, to do with him that which we see. As we look out at the world with eyes seeking to share his grace and seeking to serve, serve his sheep, God will make paths as we walk to prosper us as we faithfully do just as he did. Just like the disciples, we have been sent to serve the world just as Jesus came to serve and save the world. I'm going to invite the band to take their places on the stage. We see the reality of the extent of Christ's sacrifice as we look at his sacrifice on the cross. You have your cup of communion. If you didn't get one on the way, go ahead and raise your hand right now, and one of my deacons will bring you one. But go ahead and take the bread out of the top of that cup. Scripture tells us, as Christ was seeking to illustrate 
the depths of his love and the call to serve and the reality of the sacrifice that he would give to demonstrate that love and grace. Scripture tells us that on the night that Christ was betrayed, that he took bread. That when he given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Take it as often as you do in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. Scripture tells us that in the same way, Christ took the cup and he offered it to his disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it as often as you do it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. God, we thank you for these gifts that you have so freely given to us and Lord, we understand, even as we have looked at your truth today, that your grace must be received. It will not be forced. And so, God, today, we receive your grace again. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power and your presence in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the glorious calling that you've given us Lord, give us your eyes of compassion to look out on the world with. May our hearts be moved with love. May our hands be filled with grace as we seek to share your truth with a world that desperately needs it. Lord, may we not see service as an inconvenience. May we not see it as an annoyance. But may we understand that this is the calling. May the gospel of your shed blood fill us just as these elements that we have taken have entered us. May it move us to make a difference in our world, to serve boldly, to serve with compassion, that you might bring about your great salvation according to your plan and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.